this episode 435 of the Cyber Law Podcast, released while we're on hiatus over Christmas. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our family, our students, I should say, for this set of interviewees, our friends, or even our pets. I said that because we've got two professors that we're going to be interviewing today, Josephine Wolf and Dan Schwartz, and we're going to do I can't believe I'm saying these words all together, a provocative and controversial episode on insurance and how it may be distorting companies' ability to respond to network breaches. I uh, desperately avoided insurance law, which Dan teaches while I was in law school. Uh, So saying that this is going to be provocative is not my first instinct, but it is, I think. So Dan teaches at the University of Minnesota. Dan teaches law. Josephine teaches cybersecurity policy at Tufts. Dan, I I should say, your career and mine ran parallel to a degree. Really? I clerked on the First Circuit for Judge Coffin. You clerked for Judge Lynch. I went there because it was one of the few places I could have a an appellate clerkship and also go cross-country skiing every morning. And I did do that. And then I thought seriously about going out to Minnesota, to Minneapolis, to practice law because they had snow. And then I got out there and I discovered it always fell horizontally. And I decided maybe that was yes. not what I wanted to do. <laughs> Well, we definitely always have snow, though I will say that my decision to clerk on the First Circuit was not motivated by that, but by my desire to stay in Boston at the time for a variety of personal reasons. So it's a beautiful courthouse, and I, I very much enjoyed my time on the First I Circuit. I was there before the courthouse was, so it was, I did not get to, to enjoy it. All right, well, let's, let's jump into this. So I've been around cybersecurity policy since the 1990s, and For that entire time, people in policy have been saying, oh, if only we could get the insurance companies more involved, if only there were liability for bad cybersecurity, that would change our cybersecurity posture completely. And they've been waiting for 30 years for that to happen. And now I read your paper, and it really raises the possibility that between the breach lawyers and the cybersecurity professionals, insurance is making cybersecurity worse, not better. And I think that's a fascinating possibility. So I'm going to turn this over to the two of you for what amounts to a 30-second elevator pitch. What did you find in this article? What did you say in this article? You know, it's a lot of your article. You don't usually find anything. You just say something. But in this case, you actually did some some real work. So uh, tell me, what's the thesis of the article? I can try my 30 seconds first. So really what we find is that efforts by lawyers and, and also by insurers to preserve confidentiality of breach response can oftentimes uh, end up undermining cybersecurity. And that is for a variety of reasons. But the biggest one is that at the end of the day, attorneys have to go through a variety of checkpoints that courts set up to ensure that the breach response process and the technical firms that coordinate that process, all of that is covered by, or at least potentially covered by, attorney-client privilege and work product doctrine. And a lot of those checkpoints that you sort of are meant to, to cross off and go through to actually increase the chances that privilege is going to attach end up stifling the production of information 
and not only stifling the production of information for the firm that's breached, but also any information that goes to the cyber insurer. Because at the end of the day, if you disclose information as an attorney that is coordinating the breach response to the cyber insurer that's paying the bill, that can at least plausibly be interpreted as a waiver of any attorney-client privilege or work product doctrines. And so at the end of the day, the cyber insurers that are underwriting this, that are at least presumptively coordinating it, oftentimes don't have a really good sense of what happened when one of their policyholders is attacked beyond some basics that are necessary to coordinate claims payments. But in terms of understanding where their underwriting went wrong, and in terms of understanding how they might be able to create incentives for firms in the future to take effective cybersecurity precautions, they're not getting the level of depth of analysis and understanding that you would need in order for that sort of story that you told at the start of, of this podcast to come to fruition, where cyber insurers would actually be creating the incentives necessary for really effective cybersecurity on a going forward basis. Okay, Josephine, Dan took your 30 seconds, but I'm going to give them back to you. <laughs> well, I would just add one more thing, which was really appalling to me, maybe because I don't come from a, a legal background, but it's it's the lawyers who we talk to are doing all of these things, as Dan says, to protect confidentiality, and none of them seem to really work. So they, they end up sort of falling down in court. They're told, no, even though you've done all of this stuff, we're still not going to consider these protected reports. And what happens then, which really upsets me, is the forensics investigators incident response teams are told, well, now you can't write anything down. Now you can't even write a report. Now there can't be anything on paper because we're not even sure we can protect it. So the safest thing is just not to document it at all. And from the perspective of somebody like me who wants to study cyber attacks, who wants to learn from them and collect more data, that's, that's really heartbreaking that that has become sort of the direction we're moving in. Okay. Yeah, that is deeply ironic and maybe heartbreaking too. Uh, so to tell this truth, this sounds completely plausible. And, and I've done these breach responses and I always tell my clients, well, we're going to try to preserve the privilege, but don't count on it. And it's probably the case that you do dumber things and you spend more money and you turn over more rocks when you're pretty sure you're going to lose than when you think you've got a winning case. Because the story I'm hearing here is that the courts aren't really very enthusiastic about privilege in this context. And so they keep ruling against the lawyers that are trying to preserve it. And the lawyers keep saying, okay, well, we lost another one. We got to erect another barrier a little further back. You know, let's dig the trenches back here. And every time they they move the trench line, they're making it harder to get something useful out of the forensic investigation. But let's go back and start just so we understand what the law of privilege is. I'm going to ask our listeners to indulge us just a little in why there is an attorney-client privilege in this context, why people are pursuing it so aggressively, and then a little bit about some of the case law that has you know, force the trenches farther back. So, Dan, do you want to take us through some of that? Sure. Uh, so, look, there's both attorney-client privilege and work product issues that arise. So, attorney-client privilege, as, as most lawyers know, generally protects communications between an attorney and a privileged person, which is usually a client, that, that that's made in confidence for the purpose of providing 
or obtaining legal advice. But the key thing here is that it also extends to any communications between a lawyer and a third party to the extent that what the third party is doing is facilitating the provision. So a typical case would be you hire a private investigator, you're a lawyer, you've got a client, you hire a private investigator to find out some facts, and the private investigator tells you what they have found, and their report to you is part of your case, and you don't have to disclose it to the other side in discovery. Exactly. And so the idea of how these sort of arrangements have been structured is that if attorneys are the ones who are coordinating the breach response process, and if they are the ones who then hire some cybersecurity firm to facilitate the provision of legal advice, then the goal is, and you would think based on the example you just gave, that the report and the information that the cybersecurity firm develops in the context of facilitating the attorney's work would indeed be covered by attorney-client privilege. And to the extent that that was also prepared in reasonable anticipation of litigation, it would be protected by work product immunity. The, The real difficulty is that, you know, fundamentally at the end of the day, a lot of what we want cybersecurity firms to be doing, a lot of what they view their own job as, you know, apart from sort of the artificial structure we just described, isn't just about facilitating provision of legal advice. I mean, there are a no, whole they, bunch they, of things they, 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 This was a disaster, some kind of cybersecurity disaster, and they're trying to figure out what went wrong so that it doesn't happen again. Exactly. What went wrong? How do we get the operations up and running? Where are the, the failure points? What do you need to do to fix things? And just a lot of that isn't really about, or at least it's only partially about, helping lawyers do their job. And so when you try to fit the arrangements into this preconceived fact pattern to shield it from attorney-client privilege, it creates just these inherent difficulties. And, and, and that's just, why... Just so, so, so people are focused. The reason you want to jam it into this square hole is that you don't want to turn over a roadmap to everything that went wrong, which of course is what the report's going to focus on, to whoever's suing you for having let things go wrong. And so you're desperately trying to protect it from somebody you expect to sue you. Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, once you're breached, you're worried about getting up and running. You're also worried about being sued. And if you hire a cybersecurity firm that says, look, here's why you were breached. Here are the eight things you did that you shouldn't have done. Well, that is, as many of the lawyers said to us, that's a roadmap for a plaintiff's attorney. And not just just a plaintiff's attorney, frankly, but there also are concerns about regulatory investigations. There are concerns about public scrutiny that ends up really harming the firm. So there are a variety of reasons why firms want to at least limit or manage, I guess I should say, the information that becomes public and is available to attorneys and regulators regarding how a breach occurred and what the effects of the breach were in terms of compromising the the, the target of so, the client. And maybe I'll ask Josephine, because this, this raises an interesting question of loyalties and incentives. One of the things that was interesting in this paper, and I've seen this in in the practice as well, is that a lot of the firms that represent companies who've been subjected to a, a breach are getting their attorney fees paid by their insurer. And their insurer says, well, if we're going to pay the attorney, we're going to give you four reasonably inexpensive firms that we've negotiated with to 
pick from. So don't just bring in your Wall Street lawyers and tell me they're, they're going to do this. I've got somebody who will work for half that, and you should pick one of them. And so a lot of the firms, not all, but a lot of the firms that are doing day-to-day breach stuff are hired off of this list that the insurance companies provide. And that has created some, some odd incentives on all sides, it seems to me. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right, that you have this this set of firms that really just do data breach work, sometimes referred to as the breach mills, and they're processing, you know, maybe thousands of breach incidents in a year. And then we also talk to lawyers at larger firms that do a a wider range of stuff that charge more. And and I would say one difference that was kind of interesting is the firms that really only focus on breaches and that get all of their business through these insurance panels were much more kind of confident in their ability to preserve confidentiality, right? They were like, we have have a template and we process all of the incidents using these set of safeguards. And if we do that, then none of this is ever discoverable. None of this is ever going to be turned over to plaintiff's lawyers. And I think in a certain sense, that's sort of how they've sold their services to the insurers is one of the reasons that they get as much business as they do. The other thing I would highlight there is I think there's a historical element to this as well. So you go back to kind of the beginnings of cyber insurance, which was really focused in the late 90s, early 2000s on breaches of personal information. And breaches of personal information are a kind of incident where there is often some litigation, right? There yep. is sometimes some, you know, class action lawsuits, stuff like that. And so the insurers start looking at this data when that is the primary kind of cybersecurity incident they're dealing with. And what they see is that the thing that actually drives down costs for their policyholders the most is whether they get a lawyer involved right away. Right. doesn't matter if you have encryption, doesn't matter if you have multi-factor authentication, doesn't matter if you have firewalls or whatever else. The only thing that actually helps are the lawyers. And so they make this decision, we're going to direct everybody immediately to a law firm. And in fact, some people told us, you know, the phone number you call for your insurer sometimes just redirects automatically to a law firm. You don't even talk to the insurer. But now we're dealing with a whole bunch of incidents, ransomware, denial of service attacks that aren't breaches of personal information that don't necessarily lead to litigation, but you're still getting this sort of same template for who's in charge and how this is processed. Okay. So now that we've got the persona, we've got a lot of garden variety breach lawyers who see their principal value in protecting against litigation and in particular protecting all of the information against a privilege attack. And I assume that the courts kind of see that and are reacting badly to the idea that all of this information is locked away because it went through the lawyers. Dan? I think that's right. I think that there's increasing skepticism among courts that this procedure is one that is really about facilitating the provision of legal services. You know, one of the things we found is that by and large, these machinations of having, for instance, a tripartite agreement where the lawyers and the client together hire the cybersecurity firm, and then at least nominally, the lawyers are directing the cybersecurity firm. You know, there were a number of victories where, in fact, court said, yes, this is sufficient to establish privilege. And I think there was this view leading into 2020 that in general, if you do it right, it's going to work. And then in 2020, there's this very well-known case that, that many lawyers were at the Capital One, where 
Debevoise was coordinating the sort of breach response for Capital One and sort of checked all the boxes, did all the things you would expect that would be required to trigger privilege. And a court said, no, we're going to actually, Mandy had written a report and it said, no, we're, we're not going to, we're going to look through <laughs> the, the machinations. At the end of the day, what Mandine was doing had a business purpose that really was more significant than the than the purpose of facilitating the provision of legal advice. And I think that sort of attitude is one, I mean, we'll have to see. I think the case, one of the things that's interesting is there's not a ton of case law on this. And so particular cases loom very large, even district court cases, mm-hmm. particularly that Capital One case. And so I think that there is this a view am- among many folks, as you said, that you know, you're going to do your best to shield it through privilege, but it's just hard to know whether it's going to work or not. A lot of it depends on uh, the judge you get. A lot of it depends on the jurisdiction you're in, because there are minor variations. And a lot of it depends on just sort of, you know, at the end of the day, the optics of of how you can pitch the facts in terms of what the firm was doing. And so that really, I, I think that reality is both making lawyers, at least many lawyers, more concerned about being able to actually shield what the cybersecurity firm is doing by privilege, and then also making them, as as Josephine alluded to earlier, say, well, look, we need a really game plan for what happens if the attorney-client privilege doesn't work. And so we need to have all sorts of plans in place to make sure that the damage is limited if whatever you do does get discovered, does get into the public sphere. And so you you see, I think, that shift happening in recent years where there really is this recognition that this is not a... Uh, this is not necessarily a strategy that is going to win. And you, it's just impossible to predict confidently how it's going to work unless you really, you know, take very you know, draconian specific yes. approach. I, 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 yes, draconian <laughs> approach. <laughs> the clear lesson from this is you can protect the privilege if there aren't any documents. But I, I, right. I do want to stop for a second and just compliment you on not having stopped with doing the legal research about whether Capital One was rightly decided or wrongly decided, but asking, well, what did it mean in the field? And actually, you know, a law review article that includes field research is extraordinarily rare. And you guys went out and did a lot of deep interviews with practically everybody who's a player in this field. And you brought back some great stories because, you know, when you get the lawyer and the client and the insurance company and the forensics firm off by themselves and ask them about the other people, I don't know, have you ever read a book called House by Tracy Kidder. It's a great book. I have it's not. It's 30 years old. It's, a, it's just the story of building a house. But one of the things that he said that I've never forgotten is he said, you know, you've got the owner, you've got the architect, and you've got the builder. And if you get any two of them alone in a room, they're going to spend all their time bad-mouthing the third. And you, you got that for sure. Everybody, everybody's talking about everybody else's conflicts. So you, you actually have stories from how this is working out. And I, I want to kind of poke at what are the actual consequences? What are people actually doing in response to Capital One? How are they living out their perceived mandate to just make sure nothing ends up in the hands of some imagined, possibly, plaintiff. So what, what are the 
things they're doing that you think are really going to hurt cybersecurity? I'll start with Josephine. So I think the first thing that we heard from not every lawyer we talked to, but a number of them, was I just don't have the forensics people write reports very much anymore, right? We had one lawyer who said, you know, used to be 75% of the time I'd ask for a report. Now it's maybe 20, 25% of the time, right? You're only going to do it in cases where... Where, where, really where it says you did everything necessary. right. It was perfect. Right, but, but right. You had a really exactly, sophisticated right. attacker from, from the Russian <laughs> GRU. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Right. And anytime there's anything that could be used against you, because there's this fear that you're not going to be able to protect it, you're going to try to keep that that not written down, right? So we heard a lot of stories about, well, we'll do a Zoom call and maybe there'll be a bare bones PowerPoint or something like that, but we're not going to actually sort of recreate all of the steps and what happened and what went wrong. And we're certainly not going to put it in writing. So this is this if we do. Me as crazy if you're interested in cybersecurity. You want to know what did we do that we have to stop doing? What did we do wrong? What did we do right? What's our blueprint for the future? I, those are all things that you that the lawyers may not want it from the forensics team, but everybody else should. Right. Yeah, and going absolutely. back to your going back to your your discussion with the house book, lawyers would often say to us, "Oh yeah, the, the reports are not necessary. They don't help a lot." But then we would actually speak to insurers, we'd speak to cybersecurity professionals, we speak to firms, and they would tell us something very different. Uh, the cybersecurity firms would often tell us, look, if we don't do a report, we're not holding ourselves accountable. A lot of times you don't realize what you don't realize until you start trying to write a report. And so when we do these investigations and we're told not to write a report, no one's holding anyone else accountable. When we talk to insurers and, and, and you know, the lawyers said, oh, the insurers get enough information there. They say, well, look, we don't know what's going on in these cases. We get, you know, it's all telephone. You know, this person tells the lawyer, the lawyer tells us what happens. And we never actually hear from the cybersecurity professionals, even orally, much less in writing. And even when we talked to firms individually, we oftentimes heard, look, these reports could be very useful, for instance, for advocating for increased budgets for cybersecurity, for implementing recommendations, or for training people in a year or two or three why we have the protocols we have, how we should build on them, what went wrong in the last time, and the memory is lost if we don't report this. So while many lawyers, I would say, certainly not all, and there was, again, there's a lot of heterogeneity in terms of the lawyers we spoke to, but many lawyers felt that in most cases, the report was simply not necessary and it wasn't that big of a problem to direct a cybersecurity firm not to produce it. It's a very different story from many of the other actors we spoke to. Well, and to give to give you know equal time for bad mouthing of the forensics firms, some of the people and you quoted them, some of the lawyers said, "Oh, they just want to scare the hell out of the, their clients so that they can get new contracts to fix things," and that that's why they write these overly dramatic, overly breastbeating discussions of what went wrong, and we don't need that. So there is a you know there everybody's self interest is at work here. Yeah, I think that's true. What I would say is, so the, the way the lawyers usually phrase that is they say, we don't want any opinions or editorializing in anything that's written down. So that includes recommendations of things that the firm should do. Um, that includes saying, you know, this is a very insecure system that does not measure up to industry standards or stuff like that, because that could be used against the breach firm. But I would also say when we talk to the incident response folks who write these assessments, they said things like, you know, I tried to write down that such and such a server was vulnerable. 
all. And the lawyers told me, no, you can't write that down. That's an opinion, right? <laughs> Whereas to a technical person, that's actually a statement of fact. Yeah. And so I think there's also some disagreement on these two sides about, well, when is a security assessment, you know, just a, an opinion, this is very insecure. And when is it actually saying like, no, this wasn't patched. This was vulnerable because there were known vulnerabilities running in the software. Well, seeing how, getting a feel for how the lawyers are trying to edit these reports, I can see why they end up saying, well, they're not that very valuable at the end, because when they're done editing them, they aren't. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that that's true. And I think a lot of times, you know, that's what they want. They don't want the, the reports to be valuable because they're valuable to the firm. They can also be valuable to a plaintiff's attorney. They can also be valuable to a regulator. But at the end of the day, I think that the point isn't necessarily that sometimes, I mean, I think you're right. There are some times where these reports can be overly dramatic or where they can be used as sales tools, right? Here are the 10 things you need. Oh, and we happen to provide all those right. services. And so I do think that there is reason for some skepticism. But what's really disturbing to, to me is not necessarily just the editing down of the reports, but it's just that don't produce one at all. Right. Don't produce anything. And that seems to me, I mean, you know, Josephine said 75% to 25%. We heard a number of lawyers say 5% or almost never. Yeah. Or, or, you know, at this point, it's just virtually standard practice to not write a report. And so what, how does, you know, you've got insurers who want to know what happened. You've got the company, you've got the management, you've got the IT, the, you know, the CISO wants to have some idea of what went wrong. And then, of course, there are going to be regulators and plaintiff's lawyers who want to know about this. Who gets information and who? how do they get it if, if there's no report? So I would say most people don't get a lot of information, or certainly most of the people who we talk to don't get a lot of information. We heard, you know, we weren't able to share the findings with the IT team at the breached firm because that would be too large a circle, and then we would have waived privilege oh, if it because, went that because far. Oh, because you're supposed to be advising your client, and that's the control group that runs the company, and, and you can exactly. give them advice, but you can't give advice to the guy who's actually in charge of doing the uh, the updates for uh, most of the software you're running. Right. So they're it's, not getting information. The insurers we spoke to definitely said this has been a big struggle for them, right? They also use that 5% number. Some of them, we get so, information about what went wrong in 5% of our claims so I, cases. I'm, I'm, this is the world's smallest violin for the insurers. They said, these are the people you have to hire. They could say, if you don't get us a report, then we're going we're gonna to take you off the list. They, they, ha they can say, we're not waiving the privilege, and it's not waiving the privilege to, to usually to share information with your insurers. So they're not getting this information because they're not asking for it. Well, so we, we asked you know, that. Yeah, we did. No, well, we, we asked that a lot. Why aren't insurers demanding this? And we heard a lot of different stories. One, one thing I'll say is we heard that there are some foreign insurers that often demand reports that won't pay a claim without a report. We've also heard that there are at least some insurers in the market that are experimenting with policy forms that do make it a condition to turn over a report as, as payment, but that they're not pushing these forms. That may have been more when there was a soft market, so there was some speculation, gee, then they were in a bit of a hard market with cyber insurance, that maybe some cyber insurers will push this. But what I would say is that we also heard a lot of, of, of divide within insurers, which was really interesting to us. So 
underwriters were super frustrated that they couldn't get this uh, information. Yeah, okay. They really believed that this was a potential treasure trove of information to allow them to figure out where do their underwriting models go wrong? How can they create better incentives? How can they? But then a lot of times the claims people said, well, look, here's what we need to know. We need to know X, Y, and Z. And if we know X, Y, and Z, we can figure out whether or not to pay a claim. And yeah, the, 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 from figuring there, out whether, whether to pay the claim is not the same as deciding what your rates should be next year. Right. No, exactly. And from their perspective, remember, because most cyber insurance policies are both first party and third party, right? so they have yeah. both, there is some buy-in that many folks have, have within cyber insurers to, at the end of the day, do, do what's necessary to limit the legal liability. And so a lot of them believe the stories that, again, maybe had more purchase 10, 15 years ago than they have now, in our view, that the, the litigation risk is really absolutely necessary to manage. And that means that, that if we disclose the information to the insurer, we'll be waiving it. I and mean, we can talk about this later on. I, I think it's ludicrous, the idea that you would even be waiving the privilege if you actually just gave the report to the cyber insurer. But that's another area where there's, as far as I can, I mean, there's a lot of precedent suggesting that that in most contexts, if attorneys give reports to liability insurers, that that's not waiver under the common interest doctrine because the liability insurers and the and the, attor- the defense attorneys have a common interest in the case. But there's not actually a lot of case law about whether or not that applies in the cyber insurance setting. And a lot of attorneys are just sufficiently risk averse about that and have convinced insurers to be risk averse about that, that they think it's in their own interest to not be getting this information, at least the folks on the claims. So I, the, the, the other thing that I noticed in the footnotes, the footnotes are the best read in the, in the article, was that because they say, you don't need a report, I'm your lawyer, I'm a cybersecurity lawyer, I will tell the company what the conclusions of the forensic team were, I will be able to brief the insurer. And really, because I don't want to have a lot of emails floating around in which lower-level employees make judgments that could be discoverable, I want all the communications to go through me, too. And so you had the hilarious scenario of lawyers who are perfectly good lawyers who do a lot of this kind of discovery litigation, putting themselves in the middle of a technical discussion of what exactly went wrong and, of course, getting it wrong. And so you're playing a game of telephone with a bad telephone in the middle when you're trying to convey the problems that occurred and the solutions that ought to be adopted. And you're relying on this guy who's billing by the hour and is more interested in discovery than in cybersecurity. Yeah, I think I think that's absolutely right, that you're sort of seeing a lot of these findings translated or paraphrased or reframed through people whose background is not in cybersecurity, and that that can have some real impacts on sort of what the actual breached firm is going to take away from this, but also what the insurer and all of the people sort of trying to do modeling and, and understand how is the threat landscape changing and what are the most effective safeguards are going to take away from this incident and learn from okay. it. So I'm persuaded. This is a stupid state of affairs. So you guys, you guys win, and let's devote five minutes to fixing it. I will say I'm less persuaded by your policy recommendations than by your diagnosis of the problem. But why don't you lay out again elevator speech? What should we do about this, and who should do it? 
Yeah, so I think our basic suggestion is that at the end of the day, there should be a privilege or certain protections, but that it should be untethered to the provision of legal advice. And so we think that if you have a privilege for breach response that is limited, then what you're going to do is you're going to allow for a robust breach response. But then what we also think is that there should be some automatic reporting that is combined with it. And so what you end up getting then is you can rest assured that if you have a breach, you can just frankly hire the cybersecurity firm directly, hire lawyers if you need to, but you may or may not need to. And if you do, you might need them for specific elements of the breach response. And irrespective of the role of the lawyers, if the cybersecurity firm is is conducting the breach response, then you're going to get some form of privilege. So that would cut out lawyers in a way. But then also pair that with, look, when you have a breach here, sort of the certain elements you need to report, irrespective of what ultimately happens in your breach response. So that's the basic structure of our proposal. Okay. And so my here's my basic objection to this, and it's not an objection to how good an idea it is. It might be a good idea. I don't, I don't think there's any way you can get that through any legislature that I'm familiar with, in part because it's not clear who wins. So nobody's lobbying for it, and everybody assumes they lose, so they're going to all lobby against it. Let me ask you this. What can we do without legislation? I was actually interested in Federal Rule of Evidence, was it 407 that you cite, which is basically says you can't introduce evidence that somebody improved their security or the safety of their product after your client was harmed. You can't introduce that as evidence that they had bad security, bad safety beforehand. And makes perfect sense. You would ordinarily want to do that. You say, well, obviously, they didn't have good enough system because they, they ended up changing it after they saw you know, what happened to my client. But if you do that very common sense thing and allow that evidence to come in, no one will ever improve their security after a disaster. And so the rule that's been adopted is it's too bad for the plaintiff. We're just not going to let you make that argument. Why wouldn't that work here? I think there's some potential for it to, to work. So the basic rule of Rule 407, and I'll, I'll just put down here, I am not an ev- a, a professor of evidence. Hey, law, hey, so I've already, I've already I don't gone get there. Wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but what it does is it limits the admissibility of measures taken that would have made an earlier injury or harm less likely to occur. And so the idea would be that you could apply that in the breach response setting to say, well, look, if you adopt these recommendations, that are made by a breach response firm that that can't be used or taken as an inference that you should have had those recommendations earlier. Now, I mean, I think the limitation of this approach is that it would only apply to a very small subset of the potential breach response process because, of course, it's not just about specific recommendations that are made, but really any element of the breach response process, whether it's diagnosis of what went wrong, whether it's communication about who messed up, you you might want to shield. And you'd have to expand 407, I think, pretty broadly beyond its current scope to be able to shield from discovery any investigation after the fact. So while I think it's possible that that could work, I'm not so sure that it has enough breadth 
to deal with the problem. You'd you'd have to say, well, obviously they made the changes because of the recommendations, and the recommendations were made because of the diagnosis, and all of that needs to be protected, or people will not ask the question, what did I do wrong, and what can I do better? But that may not be where the law is. Okay. I do think, I do think coming back to something you said earlier, that the insurers have a lot of ability to change this without regulation, right? I think the insurers could be much tougher about requiring certain kinds of reports and information about any incidents that they're paying out claims for. They've been reluctant to do that, and they gave us a whole bunch of different reasons why. They're worried they'll lose customers to the competition. They're not sure that they know how to process all of that data if they get it. But I do think that would be a place for them to really step up and collect the kind of data that back when they were sort of selling policymakers on the importance of cyber insurance, they were promising they were going to be able to provide. Yeah. And the companies are actually the, the biggest victims here are the companies and their CISOs. They, they're, they're losing out on this information or they're getting it in the back door. They're calling Mandy it up and saying, can you lateral me a copy of your report? And they don't know they're screwed until long after they've been screwed because basically they get a, a, a breach. They they call everybody in the first 24 hours and get started on it. And the whole template is in motion. They've already put their tie into the lathe and it's starting to pull them closer and closer to disaster. Yeah, but they really, they, they do need to find a way to discipline this privilege claim, which is, I think, you know, it's a 15, 20% chance of working and when you really need it, but you're giving up more and more for that 15 or 20% possibility. So, okay, listen, you guys have done a great job of making even insurance law sexy. This is terrific. I, I really appreciate it. That's my, that's my goal in life. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. yeah. And I know Josephine's goal in life is to find as many lawyers in the cybersecurity field and get them out of it as possible. <laughs> so great work. Let me ask a quick question. I Obviously, Dan, you come to this from insurance. Josephine, what kind of cybersecurity stuff have you been doing besides arm wrestling with insurance companies? So besides the cyber insurance project, I've been looking a lot at sort of U.S. government responses to state-sponsored cyber attacks. I'm interested in the DOJ strategy around foreign hackers and looking at what the different sort of approaches both the public and the private sector take to responding to these state-sponsored cyber attacks has looked like. You guys were pretty skeptical about the idea that the information sharing provisions, we've we've now had two statutory provisions that seem to give people a little bit of protection for sharing information with DHS's CISA. You basically said, if I remember, that's nice, but you can only share it with the government and only if you meet certain requirements. But most importantly, you're only getting a privilege against lawsuits for sharing the information. You're not getting a privilege that protects you for inquiries into why you had the disaster in the first place. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, I think most of that was written specifically for sort of real-time threat indicator sharing. Yep. And to be honest, I think we still have a problem with companies wanting to share that information with the government, but I certainly don't think it's been especially helpful for the kinds of issues we're looking at of sort of after-the-fact analysis of incidents and root cause analysis and what went wrong. Dan, last words? Oh, well, I was just going to say that that Josephine did not mention that she also has a fantastic new book out on cyber insurance. No kidding. And so, uh, yeah, so so I was going to hope that she was going to at least pitch her book before we ended up ended this podcast. Yeah, you could call it. Well, thank you for that. You could call it cyber insurance for dummies because it sounds like from your article that there's a fair number of dummies in the business still. <laughs>
And I want to plug one other thing, which is our third co-author, Daniel Woods, who's a computer scientist at the University of Edinburgh, who's also a crucial part of this project. Yes, and I, who, whose sleep schedule probably interfered with his ability to participate in this. Okay, thanks to Dan Schwartz. Thanks to Josephine Wolf. The name of the article is How Privilege Undermines Cybersecurity, and it's coming out in the Harvard Journal of Law and Policy. Is that right? Journal of Law and Technology. Law and Technology. But, okay. Yes. And uh, Josephine told me that many of the people that she's described this article to misunderstand the title and say, oh, that's so right. White privilege surely undermines cybersecurity. So I'm, I have to say it warmed my heart to, to hear that everything, including insurance law and cybersecurity, is being viewed through a woke prism. Thanks to everybody for participating in this. To our audience, if you want to send us comments, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com or leave us a review. Thanks also to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been bonus episode 435 of the Cyberlaw Podcast. It's a bonus episode because I should be by now cross-country skiing in Vermont. We're on hiatus for a few weeks over Christmas, coming back in January. So join us then as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.